the unmarked graves is validation to indigenous people of the pain, frustration, anger, tiredness of trying to remain indigenous in a country that is still somewhat oppressive to the indigenous worldview. And so here we are, many indigenous people are just dealing with our emotions and feelings and on. Welcome to Meet the Anutin Kaywak. It's a podcast where we celebrate indigenous voices, empower communities, and share inspiring stories of resilience and leadership. I'm your host, Michael LaRock, and today's episode, we have a truly remarkable guest. He's dedicated his life to empowering Indigenous communities, and he's advocating for positive change. He's the former chief of Countess First Nations. Cadmus spearheaded initiatives on cultural revitalization, political sovereignty, and economic self-sustainability. His profound insights and unwavering commitment to his community have earned him respect not only locally, nationally, and internationally. Cadmus will share his personal journey to leadership, the challenges faced by Indigenous communities today, and the community's response to the discovery of unmarked graves at a residential school. We'll explore the importance of cultural pride, language revitalization, and empowering today's youth to create a brighter future. So with no further ado, let's dive into this enlightening conversation with Cadmus Delorme. Cadmus, it's great to see you, man. I'm, uh, I'm excited to have you on the show. Maybe start a little bit about your background and, and how you grew up. Thanks, Mike. Uh, my name is Cadmus Delorme. I'm uh, the grandson of uh, Leo Delorme and son of Bruce Delorme. Uh, they both passed on. Uh, my dad passed in 2017. I'm uh, my mother, Charlotte uh, Bear. Uh, she's from Ochapoe's First Nation. My father's from Cowes's First Nation, uh, where I am uh, registered um, to to the nation. I recently just finished a seven-year uh, term as chief of the Cowes's First Nation. Uh, my wife and I raised three beautiful young children and um, a daughter, six, and two boys, two and four. And my brother-in-law, Noah, um, we all live together on Cowes' First Nation. I uh, like to, to show my Indigenous worldview uh, experience, uh, my humor, and uh, I love uh, storytelling, but uh, I also... Uh, have that ability to walk in the Western worldview, to understand the policy, the bureaucracy, and you know just what the Western worldview offers. And I'm 41 years old. I look young. That's that reserve water I get to shower in every day. And uh, absolutely loving my journey as a proud Indigenous person today. Oh man, that's deadly. I love hearing that. And uh, yeah, people have to watch your TED talk when you talk about the res water and your uh, what was it? Your mom's red feet and you're selling like uh, smelling like pennies. <laughs> the uh, rust water made my mom's toes smell like a rust and uh, a red. And I was wondering why my second girlfriend said I smell like a penny and how come I couldn't smell like a toonie or a loony and found out after why I smell like a penny is because of our beautiful rust water we had at the time. Oh man, that's daily. Those are good stories, man. Um, well, you talked a little bit about it, about being chief. Can you tell us a little bit more on? I mean, you're a young guy, even just the just the decision to become chief and what that looked like, and and kind of the journey to that. I grew up with leaders in my family. Uh, my brother-in-law um, is a leader in his nation. My brother uh, is a leader in, in his nation of Ochapois as well. And my father uh, was an elected uh, uh, official, a, a counselor 
on cows is so always grew up at my kitchen table my parents uh, always worked hard my mom was never an elected leader but just that respected leader in the room that you know you don't have to be elected I uh, graduated on Kaosis uh, many years ago. Um, I eventually made my way to First Nations University of Canada, got an undergraduate degree in business administration there, uh, but also awoken that Indigenous worldview uh, in leadership while there. I kind of knew I wanted to be a chief. I was about 33 at the time. No, I was actually 31 at the time. 31. I was a chief. I was 33, 31. And uh, I wanted to know the worldview of Western worldview. So I got my master's in public policy, uh, public administration at the Johnson Shiama School of Public Policy. And uh, I started to campaign. I first talked with my wife and my family saying at 32, I wanted to be a chief uh, in the upcoming Kaosis election. Um, my dad said, why are you crazy to do that? And uh, you know, my wife and family gave me my blessing. I, I then started to campaign around the community, the nation, off and on reserve. And I got elected in 2020 and 2016, uh, Chief of Kaosis. And I was re-elected in 2019 to a second term. And um, we just recently had an election and I decided not to run a third term. I uh, enjoyed my seven years and uh, just uh, wanted to transition a good house over governance house to the new chief and council. Oh yeah, no, that's awesome, man. And, um, that's really cool to do that. So young everyone, well, most people, right. There's a lot of people have the vision of older, older men being the chief or older women being the chief. But, uh, even just recently, there's a lot of, a lot of young people stepping up, uh, men and women really, really filling that role and, and doing it quite well. And with that being said, I mean, you did from the outsider, from what I seen, not living there, but it, you did an amazing job, even just being able to have a lot of uh, kind of, you know, initiatives with renewable energies, different land use efficiencies, some agriculture, like these are just s on the surface for me. But like, I mean, what really stands out for you? And what are you most proud of, of your, your seven years? Yeah, it was uh, an amazing seven year journey. I, uh, I'm interested, I, I'm, I'm four, I'm three weeks, not a chief today, as we talk. And I'm still transitioning out of being a chief mentally. Like I don't have the tone. I don't have the signature. I, I don't go to meetings, but just mentally, it just, it, it, it takes a little bit to transition out. You know, it, it also gives me a time to reflect on the amazing moments. Uh, when you're a chief, you don't really have time to share a good moment because you manage poverty 80% of your time. And that 20% extra is what makes you an amazing chief is what are you going to do with that extra 20%? Are you going to be innovative? Are you going to think outside the box or, you know, what kind of tone are you going to bring? Uh, you're not the decision maker as a chief. You're the motivator. You're the one that nudges in the direction that sometimes people don't see it, but they know they ought to go that direction and so, you know, I look back, I had an amazing team. I was the youngest around the first table, uh, all the council that were elected with me, there's eight. Uh, I was younger than all of them. And um, I wasn't a counselor before, I wasn't a chief before, I had no political experience. I just ran to be a chief and got elected in 2016. So I had to prove myself the first five to six months in my four-year term, my three-year term at the time. 
and so I, I actually get a rush on proving to people. I, I've, I have an old golf story um, about proving myself. And, you know, after the six months of showing that I'm, you know, to the people that I'm capable of being the chief that they voted me in to be, um, you know, you're given two suitcases as a chief. They're, they're, they're non, you, you'll never see them, but they're just, they're there, a part of chief. The first suitcase is about everything the prior chief and councils never addressed. The elephants in the room of your community and your nation. The things that people don't address because they know they may not get reelected if they talk about it as chief and councils. That's the first suitcase. So you got two options as an elected official. You can put it under your desk and pretend it's not there and focus on the second suitcase, the optimism of why you got elected the promises, the guarantees, the the momentum, you know, the opportunities in front of you. And, you know, after talking with, uh, you know, the eight counselors who are the decision makers, we agreed to open that first suitcase in the first term. And we had a very uncomfortable conversation about talking about things that should have been talked about 30, 40, 50 years ago, 20, 10 years ago. And, um, we pretty much addressed all of them. Like I, I can say successfully today, when I look back at it, there isn't really no much, no elephants in the room on cows. As I really look forward to seeing what this council and future councils can do now, knowing that we address some pretty historical stuff internally. I'm not talking about the colonization approach the government has has had or. Um, you know, the, the, the tough, I'm talking about indigenous to indigenous stuff, like our own communities, elephant in the room. And, and then lastly, I had three pillars as a chief, everything that I wanted to not just to go to and get the team to approve and assemble an amazing team to do it was three pillars. The first one was cultural rejuvenation. Now, every cause's member should know who they are. Are you a Nehawak? Are you Anishinaabe? Are you Métis? Because we're very diverse in Kaosas. We're not just one. But your cultural rejuvenation has to happen. The second part was political sovereignty. You know, what jurisdiction are we truly in? Let's not just pound our fists and complain, but let's just define our political sovereignty and where we want to go in the next 50 years, not just in election years, but 50 years. And the third one was economic self-sustainability. How do we be proud of our economics? What economics are we going to focus on? You know, we focused on renewable energy, expanding what we had. We did agriculture. You know, we were not grain farmers six years ago, but now today we farm 7,000 acres of grain uh, we've expanded our our cattle industry. We're we're going to be a very big house when it comes to agriculture in the years to come. Uh, we have a lot of land. We property management. Um, you know, we've done some strategic alliances, and so Cows has created a new governance structure to support all this. And I can go on and on, Mike. But you know, when I look back at it, we did amazing. You know, when it wasn't Chief Delorme. It was Cows' First Nation. I was just so honored that I got to sit at a, at a place to observe everything and be in every meeting to make sure that we're nudging in the right direction together. Oh, man, that is, that's awesome to hear. And I'm really glad to hear 
well, for one, hear the pride in your voice coming off of that. And then even just the things that you have done and, and that agriculture outlook and what the future looks like. I mean, I work with so many communities and nations now that uh, we're just, we always have to go back to that well, right? Like of, of trying to get money, find grants, find funding, find all these things. But real self-governance is, is really taking care of yourself, take care of your people and having that income, right? And having that residual money where you can make those decisions, you make those choices. People aren't pushing around trying to give you X amount of dollars to do certain things. Like, no, no, we got our money. Don't worry about us. We'll be fine and be big players in that. It's uh, it's pretty amazing to see. It's, uh, it's awesome, man. Uh, with all that being said, I mean... In in Calus, I know in uh, in twenty twenty one, you guys you made some big headlines with the discovery of uh, of the unmarked graves at that former Maryvale, uh residential school. Like that was that was a big one. And, and how did the community cope with that tragedy? And and what what kind of steps did you have to take? And what did that what that look like for yourself? Mm-hmm. It, it was a um, a moment in our history as Cowes' First Nation that, that uh, changed us, that uh, we adapted quickly. Uh, growing up as a kid on cows, is, uh, we have a bingo hall, a hall not too far and uh, from in the valley by the unmarked graves. And as a kid, my mom would, you know, I'd go to bingo with my mom and she'd always tell us, don't go play over there. There's unmarked graves. People knew. We just never really asked questions of what unmarked graves are, who are they? And it's just, they were just there. And um you know, the ra- ground radar penetrating, uh, 751 hits. Uh, we were doing ours. Um, and we were doing it not not to go public. We were doing it just because we wanted to start to put headstones to unmarked graves. Like, it was just, it was a matter of a duty for, for us. And then Kamloops, um, Chief Kashmir came forward on behalf of Kamloops and, and, and shared um you know 231 uh i believe the number was in in may of 2021 and it just like it paused the whole country it, it just you know it was just like a moment of truth and you know that moment uh causes we were about to finalize our numbers and so we finalized our numbers a few weeks later and um getting guidance from knowledge keepers and from leadership and from others we went public with our number just to to show that you know we were working on ours as well and the amount of uh local provincial national and international attention uh was not really ready for that like the that the unmarked graves is validation to indigenous people of the pain, frustration, anger, tiredness of trying to remain indigenous in a country that is still somewhat oppressive to the indigenous worldview. And so here we are, many indigenous people are just dealing with our emotions and feelings and on cows is hundreds of people and media started to show up and you know, our immediate reaction was hospitality because that's who we are as cows as people. We'll always try to give the best hospitality, but I just, we didn't have the resources to address our own personal emotions to this at the time. And then it was triggering, you know, uh, internally Indigenous to Indigenous, we started to agree and disagree on the validation. Uh, We started to disagree and agree on the numbers and the stories and um, 
it was it was a lot. And then a few weeks after that, the prime minister and premier uh, came to Cowes' uh, with our invitation. We asked them to come. And, uh, you know, it just calmed the moment down that, um, you know, two people who represent the Western world, the U.S., Saskatchewan and Canada came to just, you know, be in the moment with us. And um, it really helped us in the direction that we are today. And today we have um, matured. I believe as a nation to a different level in our healing journey because of that moment. But that moment was too overwhelming, not enough resources and too much came at us at once. Um, to go back again, uh, it, I wish we would have wrote more of the story down. We just all took it with stride. Yeah, no. And that's, I mean, that's kind of the story too, for a lot of, a lot of nations, a lot of communities, right? It just, a lot of things are so overwhelming and they're just, you got to just run around. You're just putting out fires and you don't really get a chance to, well, for one, document any of that and, and take some lessons and learnings. It's always just next fire, next fire, right? And you're just mm -hmm. running around. Um, that's a lot, man. That was, that was, uh, again, from the outside, uh, you handled it quite well. I mean, as far as I could, I could gather. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time looking at these things and again, with my, uh, with my with my career it's i i it's part of what i do right and and really interested in in native communities and and how nations handle things and the way things are going and it's um again i think you guys did the best you could with what you had and that's that's kind of where it is and that leads to my next one which is uh which is a little better um story in the sense of you guys became the first community to have jurisdiction over your kids and care um, which is awesome, man. And now I'm seeing other communities really pushing for that, fighting for that, getting it and, uh, and being able to control that. Like what would that, that initiative come from the group? Did it come from a certain person? And, uh, and how did that feel as a, as a win for the community? First nation, uh, we're a rights holder, just like every other 633 nations across this, uh, country as well as Métis and, and Inuit. And as rights holders, we have an inherent right to our children. In 2017, uh, a year and a little bit after I was elected chief, I was sitting uh, with, with the community, uh, with the leaders, and we started to assess what we can control in our destiny moving forward, what we can gain strength on. And um, child welfare reform um, was a discussion. It uh, started with a coffee, actually, with an uh, elder on Kaosis. We were breaking bannock and having tea at her house. And she was um, sharing with me um, the uh, challenges she has with her grandchild in, in the system, in the, in the child welfare system. And so I started to let her know that we have an inherent right to this. And Canada um, is about to approach it as well as a, um, uh, you know, an alliance, uh, as a crown relations uh, theirs was called Bill C-92, now the Act. And uh, so um, the elder I was sitting with said, let's do it. And so I went to council. Um, you always got to start at council in Indigenous governance. Uh, so I went to council. The eight council members um, you know, just said, make sure uh, we can you know, get reelected and don't send us back 20 years doing this. So I said, I'll do my best. And you know, we assembled a team with council, with knowledge keepers, with uh, Cowes' members and with non-Cowes' members. And we embarked on the journey. Uh, we started to assess our loss as a control. 
when it comes to our inherent rights to our children. Uh, it's uh, it's something a nation has to do. You have to understand where you're colonized and where you have to decolonize. It's it's nothing. It's a tough conversation, but it's uh So, anyways, we had those conversations, and we eventually created uh, the Mio Pima Tiswin Act, which is the Cows's Child Welfare Law, it means striving for a better life in Cree. Uh, we then approached the governments, uh, Saskatchewan and Canada, and said, uh, you have a fiduciary obligation to fund our inherent right law. We have full jurisdiction across this country. We're going to treat our children the same from Nova Scotia to Winnipeg to on the reserve to Calgary. We have a model that has always worked. Your provincial systems are not working. And uh, in June, July of 2021, Prime Minister Trudeau, Premier Mo came to Cowsis and the three of us signed in front of the Cowsis members in a beautiful celebration at our arbor, um, the Mio Pima Tissouin Act, as well as funding for it. And so today Cowsis is in year three of full jurisdiction of controlling our destiny with our model when it comes to children in care. Great, man. I love hearing that. And it was uh especially from our last topic kind of rolling into this one it's uh we're really taking that back and taking control of it again right and and really being able to um just have more influence on those kids and, and get them back eh, to the ways and and everyone's learning we're all learning and i'm trying to you mentioned elders and breaking bannock i every community i work in now i <laughs> it's funny if i ever get pulled over by the cops they'll be like hey what are you doing i have my uh my work briefcase is just full of uh, i got pouches of tobacco everywhere <laughs> and they're just like what are you doing uh but yeah i know it's uh it's pretty special even just to go back to them and and uh and start taking this back so it's great and a lot of the few communities that i have worked in that are that are getting the ball rolling and that have this going um they definitely looked for you or to you as uh as the ones that as blazed that trail right and and did a lot of the work so it's uh that's pretty awesome man that's a great legacy to have on your uh have on your record um i guess again with that being said man you're not so you decide not to run for a third term what uh like looking back now, like just reflecting, I know you had, uh, I guess a few weeks now, Hey, but what's, what was looking back at it? And it's like, is there, um, I don't know. Is there, is there a real, real sense of pride and, and what can you, uh, what can you take to your learnings into the future, all your future endeavors as your young man? <laughs> I'm uh, one month, two days uh, political free. Uh, I don't know if there's a public anonymous uh, or, or, or uh, um, what is it, a political anonymous I could join. I feel like I need to vent a little bit. I um, It was an amazing journey. I um, was 33 when I was elected and um, seven years when the first term came, it was uh, a blessing. Uh, we reorganized governance-wise our foundation, asserted our jurisdiction with our own constitution now. Cowsis has a constitution validating our inherent rights and you know, empowering our citizens, Cowsis citizens. And then year two, we went into growth stage. We went into uh, um, creating uh, agriculture, renewable energy projects, child welfare, and we did that all through a pandemic and during the unmarked graves. Uh, nobody ran um, in politics in this country to say, I will get us through a pandemic or I will get us through this moment of validation of unmarked graves. And so as, as leaders, uh, we did that. And, you know, today when I sit here, I, I reflect on the 
amazing team and the support of the staff and the momentum of the citizens and the support of uh, other Indigenous people and Canadians. Uh, Kausis, I believe, is a, uh, a nation that is respected now uh, regionally, provincially, nationally, and even probably a little bit internationally. And, you know, the reason I, I sit here and smile is I want to make sure a youth across this country, no matter what they're doing, if they're from Kausis and someone says, you're from Kausis, you guys have a progressive nation. You're from Kausis. Oh, you guys are into this. You guys are into that. That should be motivation to that youth to show their parents and grandparents that we are getting stronger one day at a time. That is great, man. Uh, John, I, I interviewed a guy, John Langdon. He's a pretty cool dude. He's uh, He's got a lot on the go, and that's what he's, he said that. He's like, you know, people are looking, and there's like it's cool to be Indigenous. Everyone wants to be Indigenous again, and looking back and being strong and having leaders like yourself, very progressive and, and moving forward and striving for better things. So it's, it's awesome. Uh, that really ties into the next one of you, you mentioned it with youth and youth from your community. Like what's uh, what can you, what can they aspire to or what can they use to become better leaders or what can they start working on to become better leaders? These youth and especially as ourselves as parents, like what can we, you, that you've seen down the trail now you've been around it for so long that just some skills to, uh, to ingrain in these kids? Mm -hmm. In 2023, our youth are, um, are, are excelling. They're excelling in a Western worldview. Um, social media, um, the Western worldview education, the, um, you know, the sports, uh, the, uh, you know, many different means. There's many hobbies. And, and that's really good. But, you know, a youth, especially an Indigenous youth, when they look in the mirror in the morning when they're getting ready or brushing their teeth and they see that beautiful caramel-colored skin, and, and some are undercover. I'm not going to say not all are uh, caramel-colored. Some are undercover. But, you know, what do they, what do they see in themselves as an individual? Because, you know, five generations ago, our great, great, great grandparents uh, walked this land with that affirmation of who they were and that, you know, pride of who they were. You know, five generations now to 2023, uh, we've been through a lot in the last five generations. But, you know, our youth, you know, have all opportunity to succeed in a Western worldview. The challenge I find our youth face is more in an Indigenous worldview in rediscovering who we are. You know, sometimes as adults and, and grandparents, and please, I'm saying this with a very open respect, we've kind of become our own worst enemies at time today. You know, and we carry chips on our shoulder that we have all right to do because of what this country has done, because what people have, have treated us. But are we treating and training our kids to be resilient like our great, great, great grandparents by... You know, just it's 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 a it's a balance we have to do as adults to prepare our children to be resilient and proud people. And you know, language is foundational. You know, some people will say, "Why teach the language? It's not going to help them." I actually still hear that today, even from our own indigenous people. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm twenty percent fluent, and I've taught myself over the years. But language, you know, is identity. 
you know it's beautiful it's funny it's 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 relationship and um you know secondly it's it's the pride and and just what indigenous people you know who who we stand and how who we are uh how we stand and who we are you know in our in our dance and our songs like every youth should have a song and a prayer that they walk this land with you know you should have one song from the drum that you can sing at any time when you're alone when you're sad because life is like that and then lastly um you see role models out there like uh Ethan Bear in the NHL or uh Bridget Lequette in in hockey for you know there's you know Ashley Collingbull and um you know there's all these role models out there that are young and 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 doing amazing things and uh they're succeeding in the western world view but i find that the more we focus on our indigenous world view the more the foundation is going to be set long term because the western world view it is tough to succeed in that i am not going to shy around it there are glass ceilings that are there and some of those glass ceilings are between our own ears and how we i don't belong here or i want to go back to the res or i want to just stick with my bros and no no that's kind of between your ears like you just got to realize you have your own glass ceilings and some of them are in western world view like you know there's reasons why indigenous people are not in certain areas you know like yourself like you know michael you you're telling me that you know you're succeeding in a in a science area that is like very unknown for many indigenous people and so um yeah it's 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 i i i see so much potential for youth and uh i love being a motivational speaker you put me in front of youth and i can get them laughing and i can remind them who they are but also set the tone moving forward that's great to hear man that's really good advice too there's a lot wrapped up in that and i i love hearing it and and you nailed it right like we put all these glass ceiling we put all these limitations especially on ourselves and uh i'm a prime example of that and it is real battle all the time in my head of you know you don't belong here you're 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 not smart enough you can't do this you can barely spell you can barely read but it's just uh just how you communicate how you do things with people and a work ethic and it, it goes a long way so that's uh that's awesome to hear man uh you did mention kids let's uh let's kind of flip the switch a little bit and and just talk about yourself like you have a few kids uh your wife what what uh what does that look like with your family and I, I homeschool, so I always ask these questions. Like, they're in traditional school. They do all these things. Like, what do you got on the go with them? Uh, good for you for homeschooling, your wife and you. I, uh, so my wife and I, uh, we've been snagged uh, 17 years. Uh, we've been married 10. Uh, we um, both achieved an undergraduate degree together uh, at First Nations University of Canada. Uh, took 90% of the same classes. We were very competitive with each other and... Uh, I studied twice as hard as her, and she still beat me in GPA. And uh, I, I taught myself at that time, don't compare yourself to people beside you. Just know you learn at your own means. And so um, she uh, went on to get into the workforce. Today, she's a director of human resource in an organization. I uh, went on to uh, get a master's in public policy at a school called the Johnson Shiama School of Public Policy. And then I was elected chief. And we had uh, children. Um, we have a. Uh, we raised my 17-year-old brother-in-law, uh, my sister's uh, youngest brother. He's lived with us for seven years now, and uh, we have a two, four, and six-year-old. Uh, two and four boys, six-year-old a girl. 
girl runs the house. Uh, she holds the remote. She tells us what's going to be on TV. And they all attend uh, uh, daycare and school on cows. Uh, we live on cows. It's, uh, it's uh, something that we, we take pride in. And, you know, our, our kids are in uh, T-ball and underhand right now. Um, it's springtime here. So uh, they're going to get into soccer and, and other sports. Um, I have very, very uh, hyper children who love sports. And I'm just learning what kind of dad I'm going to be as a parent slash uh, sports um, uh, watcher, almost assistant coach. I'm very competitive and I'm very hard on myself. So I'm already in T-ball telling my boy, come on, you could do better than that. I kind of like kick canvas, take it easy. This is just T-ball. So I think I'm going to be one of those parents that are going to be very uh, animated in my kids' sports. Hey, man, I understand that better than anybody. They got, they wrote me in. I'm an assistant soccer coach. Never played soccer day in my life. I'm yelling at these kids, kick the ball, get it in. What are you doing? Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty intense. That's awesome, man. Um, I'm, gr- I'm so grateful too that you're involved with your kids' sports, uh, especially as a father, right? That's really important, and that's a big thing for myself as uh, male role models and having that male influence in their life. And um, I'm really, uh, it's really awesome to hear that you're doing that, and they get to see their dad being part of that, right? Not looking up from the field, looking, seeing their dad looking at his phone or something, but his dad's yelling at him, and you know, that's that's better. You know, it's that's awesome. I. As a coach now, I see it on so many faces. The kids don't even care about the game. They just keep looking back to see what their parents are doing. And, um, you know, most of them are, are looking down and it's, uh, it's a bit of a shame, but it's, uh, that's a whole nother topic for another day. But uh, I just want to be mindful of your time. I know we got, I just got a couple more and then we'll, we'll let you go. But speaking of, uh, of role models and male, male uh, influence, or it could be female influence as well, but do you have any, um, maybe just one, even a specific story or kind of a specific moment that you remember of a role model or even someone that you just looked up to and, and how that kind of shaped your, shaped your journey? Yeah, thank you. I, uh, you know, there's two, two approaches to this one. You know, I'm, my, my parents um, are residential school survivors and uh, they had every reason to raise me with bitterness and mistrust at how Canada has treated them and how they're about to, you know, potentially treat me as a indigenous person in this country, but they didn't. My parents raised me to be a believer. They raised me to be proud to be indigenous, but to understand that there's two worlds and you have to succeed in both worlds. And, you know, my parents, you know, with thousands of others, attended residential schools in this country and you know today um each of you know each of one that attended is my role model because you know we you're we're still trying to be believers today and hope and so i i want to be that that beacon of hope in 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 each survivor that i meet and say listen i i will continue one day at a time but you know that's that's the that's the collective of of you know who my heroes are. Secondly, when I was in university, we had to dissect one poem, and I just tripped on this poem in a book called "The Lament for Confederation." It was read at Stanley Park in 1967 by then Chief Dan George. He wrote it and he spoke it at the 100th centennial, and that poem has changed my life. Like that poem is my, it's, it's my strategic plan. It's, it's something that I 
need to help accomplish. And in the poem, Chief Dan George started off by thanking Canada for putting Indigenous people in such a disarray. It was a, uh, a double negative. And then he went on to talk about, we're still here. And then he ended off in the poem saying, within a hundred years, Canada, Indigenous people will stand in your house of law and rule and and to 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 help lead this country and that was in 1967 chief dan george did the lament for confederation you know i i got till 2067 to help implement that and you know that poem has triggered me in the most positive way to always understand what the end goal is and the lament for confederation it really speaks to the emotional side that we deal with but also the hope and the perseverance and you know i'm in treaty four and what treaty was meant to be and what what would have happened if we fully implemented a treaty relationship because i love the western worldview like i succeed in the western worldview today and i have many many friends colleagues i've you know joined many boards and you know i've worked in the western worldview but i'm also a very proud indigenous person in the indigenous worldview i got to tone it down a little bit i'm a little too proud to be indigenous at times but you know, I say that with a smile that, you know, you can do both worldviews. And when people understand that we can, as Indigenous people, do both worldviews, we are just unlimited to the ceilings that we're going to face. And like the ceilings are going to get lifted. And so those are my two role models that I've learned to date. And I'm only 41, so I know there's many role models out there that I'm, I'm still yet to, to meet. <laughs> well, the way you're heading and the way you're, things you already did, uh, you're a pretty big role model yourself. So that's, uh, that's pretty awesome, man. Um, well, let's, uh, let's wrap this up, buddy. I, I, again, I appreciate your time. The only, uh, the only thing would just be kind of what's, uh, what's the future hold for yourself and, how can people uh, how can people watch or get a hold of you and and uh, find you if they need to? Yeah, you know, thank you for listening and thanks for the interview. It's such an honor, such a great podcast you run. And um, you know, I'm on social media. I am on uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I have a YouTube channel. I only uploaded about six videos so far. I um, yeah, I do them all. I'm on TikTok and, uh, you know, I, I just, I find that when you use it in such a good way, I, 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 I have a rule for all my social media. If it's not funny or if it doesn't help anybody, I don't post it. And so, you know, people could message me that way. Uh, in the, in the, in the short term, you know, I'm going to, you know, stay close to home, uh, you know, be full-time dad for a little while, learn to learn to relax. Um, you know, my wife has, uh, you know, some, endeavors that she's dealing with right now and i'm going to be her very big supportive uh partner husband snag um and you know i do motivational speeches i do strategic consulting uh helping nations helping western worldview so long term i want to get into economics i i do believe when a child wakes up and watches their parents get ready for work in the morning you can change so much in a home fire 
So I want to do something in economics to help bridge Indigenous worldview and Western worldview. And maybe one day politics is in my journey again. Maybe it's First Nation politics. Maybe it's non-First Nation politics. But I'm 41 years old. I'm just going to enjoy the moment. I had an amazing seven-year journey as chief. Uh, I have a mom that I visit almost every day. Uh, as a chief, you don't really put your family first all the time because you uh, your family becomes all your Kauses members. So now I just get my immediate family again, and I'll be doing that for the for the short term. Oh, that's great to hear, man. Well, like I say, I, I think you uh, you got politics. Yeah, we didn't even scratch the surface here. You got connections to the king now. You got all kinds of stuff, buddy. You got world's your oyster, but uh, maybe for another day, maybe for another day. But uh, again, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate everything you did in your in your time as chief and uh, can only imagine what the future holds. So um, again, we really appreciate it and thank you. Thank you, Michael.